The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Everybody, Victoria Moran here. I'm your host for Main Street Vegan Radio. So happy to have you with us. We were going to have a three-girl party today here in my living room and connect with our favorite engineer ever, Jeff, out there at Unity Village, Missouri, who just put on some funny glasses so that he could crack me up. You have got to get up pretty early in the morning and drink your green juice for this guy not to put something over on you. Hey, Jeff, thanks for all your help. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for hosting Main Street Vegan every Wednesday afternoon and then putting us all over podcast land on iTunes and Stitcher so that people can listen now, listen later, and uh, get some of the wisdom and information that I get from my wonderful guests. So our three-person party that was supposed to have Erin Red Grayson of Erin Red Radio, well, she couldn't come. Hey, Erin, come another time. We'd love to have you. But we're two-girl party, and that's good. And I am joined today by Sherry F. Cold. Sherry is the author of a brand new, really, really important book called Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger and Other Questions People Ask Vegans. Now, Sherry is a professor of law and Charles Evans Hughes scholar at Cornell University Law School, where she teaches courses in animal rights, evidence, and criminal procedure. Ooh, that sounds just like SVU. She is a graduate of Columbia College and Harvard Law School and a former law clerk to the late Supreme Court Justice Harry A. Blackman. Kolb lives in Ithaca, New York, with her husband, two daughters, and two mixed-breed dogs. 
I am rather fond of the mixes myself. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you, Victoria. Thanks for having me. It is so wonderful to have you here. I love doing the live shows. There's just some kind of great energy. I love that you said mixed breed dogs. I always talk about Forbes as a rescue dog so that people get it, that this is not a purchase. This is not an owner-slave relationship. Exactly. My daughter used to walk our late great dog, Aspen, when we lived over on the east side. And people that don't know Manhattan, this is a very neighborhood kind of place. And you sort of are your neighborhood. And and the Upper East Side has traditionally been very staid, very conservative. One day when we hadn't lived there very long, my daughter came in and said, I saw two guys holding hands. There's hope for the East Side. (laughs) But, um, you know, a lot of older people in, in, in our part of town. And when she would walk Aspen, four or five times it happened that, that an older lady would, would look at her and kind of look at Aspen with some disdain and say, is that a mix? And my daughter got so tired of this that one day she looked at the lady and said, why no, she's a purebred Aspen. And the woman goes, oh, 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 oh I thought she might be an Aspen. <laughs> really? Yes, we have we have fun with our fellow humans. But, you know, sometimes our fellow humans do things that are just inexplicable. And sometimes the laws of the land say, that's okay, buddy, have a pass. And something like that happened just yesterday out in Missouri, where our wonderful um, engineer is sitting now and where I was born and grew up. Uh, I started to say a gentleman, I'm not going to call him that, a male human, uh, drowned his cat because the cat had scratched his girlfriend. Did you hear about this? I just heard from your engineer (coughs) as well. I hadn't heard the story before, though. Well, the upshot of it is not only was this a terrible thing, but the law in Missouri is preventing the prosecutor from, from... but filing any charges because the law there says that if the animal is yours, if you own the animal, you can kill it. Now, if you try to kill it, but it doesn't die, and forgive me for using the it word, if you try to kill him or her and he or she does not die, then they can get you for animal cruelty. But if you want to kill them and you do kill them, that's fine. Do you know about laws like this existing in this country? Yeah, there are laws like that. And um, I mean, the, the, the idea that it would be irrelevant how you kill them is certainly interesting. The idea that it could be not cruel no matter how you do it. But it's not that unusual for the law to treat animals as our property. And so, for example, if somebody killed another person's cat, that would be prosecutable, but if it's your cat, it isn't because that's your property. And a sort of less extreme version of this is that if you don't really like your dog or cat, you can, in just about everywhere, go to the vet and say, I would like you to put down my dog or cat. I'm tired of having him or her, and probably that person would say it. And then, you know, since it's yours, they can't even, even if the vet says, well, I would like to keep this cat or dog, I can take care of him. It, you know, it's up to you because it's yours. And I think that connects with the law generally treating animals as commodities rather than as sentient beings who have interests independent of their owners. 
And it's so like slavery. Yes. I'm feeling what, like we've just been sent back 150 years and what we're saying now is okay, according to some laws regarding animals, was once okay for people who owned other people. Yes. That's it's really true. frightening. Well, I actually knew about this law because when I was living in Missouri, actually this was in the late 1980s, and I moved from Kansas City to the central Missouri Ozarks. My first husband had died, and I had somehow convinced myself that living in the country would be simple. What I didn't know was that if you didn't know how to live in the country, it was very, very complicated. But anyway, I was there. And across the road and down the road a piece, there was a little house. And I knew that there was trouble in this family. I could tell that the man drank, and I had reason to believe that he physically abused his wife. But I didn't know enough to call the police or anything like that. But this one day, he brought his wife's little dog outside, and he had this big shotgun. And he was seeming real angry, and he was kind of kicking at the dog, and he had this gun. So I called the sheriff's office, and the first man that I talked to there said, we'll send somebody out. And I waited, and waited, and waited, and nobody came. And then I called again, and I got Barney Fife. I mean, seriously, I got (laughs) Barney Fife. And this man said to me, quote, ain't no law again killing your own dog. And that was when I was first informed of of this law. So the end of that story is I was actually being visited at that time by a lovely man named Chaz Palamentere. Is that a familiar name to you? That's an actor, right? Okay, then that's the wrong name. That's the actor. This guy is named Chaz, and he has another Italian name. And I'm sorry, and I'm Italian too. My <laughs> my um, maiden name was Mucci, so it's not just that I think all Italian names sound alike. But anyway, this was 20 years ago. So this is Chaz. He was visiting. And he and I walked across the street. Never before have I ever walked into a double-barreled shotgun. But we did, because what else can you do when somebody is going to kill a dog right in front of you? But you know how bullies are when you confront them. Very often, they're kind of, they back off. And and we said, you know, what's the problem? What's going on? And the guy says, well, there's a stray cat around here causing all kinds of trouble. So we went to the Humane Society, got a humane trap, put it out for the stray cat, which of course didn't exist, Um, (laughs) never showed up. But ick. Yeah, I, I, would, I would never rather not be uh, reminded of things like that. But I guess if we're going to keep our eyes open and make changes, we can't hide either. Oh, that's true. So tell me about your teaching. You teach animal law at Ithaca at Cornell? I teach uh, animal rights, which is a little bit different from animal law because we don't focus that much on the laws regulating how we deal with animals. And we focus more on the sort of fundamental uh, legal status of animals, which you at, which you alluded to here in talking about this cat, which is that they are statuses as property, not as beings with interests of their own that have to be served. And so if you hurt, for instance, you hurt a cow, if that cow is someone else's cow, then you've harmed their commodity. 
But if I eat a cow, you know, kill my own cow, eat him or her, or pay someone else to do it, as most consumers do, then nothing illegal has happened because the cow is only so much as she is worth to the owner. And that's, you know, unfortunate. So we, we talk about that and, and the different features of that in, in my course. So what kind of students do you get? Are they mostly vegetarians or are they just curious? It's, a, it's really a mix. I would say not mostly vegetarians. I think I, I went around the room last time just to get a sense of what brought people to the course. And a lot of them said, well, I love my dog and I wanted to think about this more broadly. And some of them had someone in the family who was vegan or they just took a course with me and they wanted to have me for class again, which is always nice to hear. Um, and so people came from very different walks of life and, and you know, t- as to the extent that, you know, students at Cornell come from different walks of life, which they do. And, and a few people will come from other parts of the university. So we had somebody from the agriculture school who had you know, her own perspective on things. And so it was interesting. Is that scary? When somebody's in your class that you know has a completely different way of seeing things, it can be, but it's such an, an it's, it's such an incredibly enriching experience because it means that you really have to be able to listen with curiosity and openness to someone who doesn't see things the way you see them at all. And that's very useful and humbling practice, I think. It is indeed. And I can see why people would want to take your class a second time or take another class from you. You have a lovely, <laughs> lovely spirit. I'm here today with Sherry F. Kolb, author of Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger and Other Questions People Ask Vegans. So stay with us through the break, and we're going to get into that cheeseburger and other stuff right after this. Unity Online Radio is affiliated with Unity, a nonprofit organization specializing in prayer, publishing, and spiritual education. If you enjoy our programming and would like to support this ministry, go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now to make a contribution. You can make a one-time or recurring monthly donation. Thank you. What if you could experience vibrant health, help heal the planet, and be a great friend to God's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller.
You're listening to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Main Street Vegan. My guest today is Sherry F. Kolb, author of Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger. Oh, if you're vegan or vegetarian, you have been asked questions like this so many times. And speaking of questions, if you have a question for Sherry or if you want to join in the conversation, today we are at 888-558-6489. Give us a call, 888 888- Five five eight six four eight nine toll free, and we will just be tickled pink to talk with you. So, Sherry, these questions I have definitely heard many times, but I don't think I have ever heard them answered with the depth it, it, that you you treat them with. This is a really, really wonderful, wonderful book. So, everybody, just rush over to your computer and order a copy, even as we speak. So, why, Sherry, do you think that? People ask us particularly the kind of what-if questions. You know, the questions like, don't animals eat other animals? And what would happen to all the animals if everybody went vegan today? Ah, why? (laughs) Well, I think that for a lot of people, seeing somebody who eats vegan, and that that can happen just by having dinner with someone who does, can be a little bit threatening and you know, because implicitly it passes a judgment over the way that most of us have lived. And so I think to some degree, the questions come from a defensiveness, a sort of, well, you know, your the way you're doing things is not so, is not so good because you're killing plants or because, you know, I'm like animals. And so if you think so much about animals, then why don't you do what they do, which is eat other animals? So I think some of the questions come from there. And then some just come out of curiosity. People haven't really come across that many vegans and they just met you and you're vegan. And so they figure, oh, I have a bunch of questions for you. It's sort of like meeting a space alien. You know, I want to know what it's like. Yeah, I remember when people thought the word vegan was so weird and it sounded like the planet Vegas. It really was like meeting a a space alien. (laughs) Well, you know, the person that I met first who really asked with great interest about killing plants and and why plants feel pain. This was back, I wasn't even vegan, but I was vegetarian. I was in my early 20s, and a friend of mine was teaching meditation classes at the penitentiary in Leavenworth. Wow. So she got me in to do a talk on vegetarianism. So I came and did my impassioned talk about animals and this and that, And during the Q&A, this one man said, I get it. I so get it. But what about plants? I mean, we kill plants. And I said to my friend afterwards, what could this man possibly be in prison for? He has the softest heart. She said, Victoria, he murdered his girlfriend. Oh, my goodness. But let's just start with that one. What do you do with the killing plants question? Well, I think... um, I mean, to some degree, I think vegans get this question all the time and that it can be, oh, they can be quite frustrating because 
sometimes you just wonder, is this person really concerned about plants or is this just a gotcha question? And all, you know, nobody likes a gotcha question. So, um, but what I try to do is to kind of assume good faith whenever someone asks a question. And then if it turns out I'm wrong, that's better than if I assume bad faith and I was wrong. And so the, the plants question, I think for me, the biggest reason that I, that I feel more um, cons- concerned about um, pl- animals than plants is that animals are sentient and they have feelings and they have fears and they have things they want and life can go better for them or worse for them in a way that we don't really have evidence that, that that's true for plants. It may come someday um, to, to may turn out that, that that's true of plants, but we really have nothing telling us that that's so. Um, and so that, that's my primary answer is, is sentience, you know, the capacity to experience the world just as we experience the world. Yes. And one thing that I also say to people who ask that question is if you really care about plants, you're responsible for the death of so many more plants when you eat animal products because those animals ate so many plants to make the little bitty piece of meat or the small amount of of animal food that you're eating. That's very true. I think you're right. I don't think they're really asking about plants (laughs) most of the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think Colleen Patrick Goudreau sometimes will say, are you serious? You know, as a response to some of these questions. But I think that, I think that's a great answer that most, unless you're exclusively eating hunted food, you are going to end up killing more plants from an animal-based diet than from a plant-based diet, if that's truly your concern. Yes. And I suppose, in theory at least, if we're going to be talking in theoretical questions, one could devise a diet that didn't kill any plants. If you ate only the vegetables and the fruit-like vegetables, things like cucumbers and tomatoes and squash, the plant lives when you you take away what what you eat. You could eat some nuts, so you'd have a little bit more balance there. Yeah, I don't think a whole lot of people are staying up at night worried about <laughs> kale. Yeah, I, I want to read something, Sherry, because this was supposed to be on your book and it didn't make it there. God bless publishers, especially your publisher. I think you have one of the most ethical publishers in the world, Lantern Books. They published the latest edition of, of my book, The Love Powered Diet. I love them to pieces. Um But your quotation from James McWilliams didn't get on this edition of the book, so may it sell out and you get a second edition really quickly. But here is what James McWilliams, professor of history, Texas State University, and author of Just Food and the Politics of the Pasture, had to say about this book. He said, Sherry Kolb's Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger is a rare fusion of passion and logic, idealism and pragmatism, style and substance, and in its measured confrontation of the most challenging questions vegans face, a revolutionary guide for advocates seeking to engage the ethics of eating animals through authentic dialogue rather than bombastic rhetoric. Kolb's literary touch is something to behold. She writes in a way that will appeal to non-vegans and vegans alike, building bridges across an all-too-turbulent divide. This is food writing at its best and food writing as it should be. Honest, inclusive, inspirational, and more than you might imagine, timely. Whoa! He likes your books. <laughs> and I do too. As I was telling you earlier, it, it has this, this kind of 
fun, sassy title. And so I was expecting it all to just be sassy and funny. This is deep. Thank you. You really get into things. So since we are brave women here, I'm going to jump right into the toughest question. Chapter seven. Are you against abortion? That's a very complicated um, question. But what I'll say is that I think it's a lot more difficult an issue than we sometimes acknowledge. And I am pro-choice. So ultimately, I think that women should have a right to terminate a pregnancy. But I think over time, I've come to see the issue differently than I first did. First, I just thought, well, it's not a person. So that's the end of the conversation. And I think now that that's not really necessarily the most important question to ask. For me now, the question to ask is, well, is it sentient yet? And that happens at some point during pregnancy before birth. Um, And at that point, I think, The reason to be pro-choice, which I am, is the fact that woman's bodily integrity is so much on the line when she's pregnant and that forcing her to take a pregnancy to term is just not something that we should force someone to do. Um, But it's not because, oh, well, it's just a fetus. So it's really much more about the woman for me and less about what it, you know, what it's only this or it's only that. And I think my sensitivity to animals has really helped awaken me to this issue in a different way. Mm, That's really beautiful because that is such a contentious issue. At one point in my life, I wanted to do a one-woman show called My Father's Other Job because my father was a physician in Kansas City back in the ancient days of the 1940s, 50s, 60s, before Roe v. Wade. And he had started doing illegal abortions in medical school when he needed the money. And he just kept doing them because evidently he was very skilled at this. Now, I didn't know this growing up. All I knew was that my family was very weird. Uh, (laughs) One time... uh, my, my nanny took me to a hotel right there in Kansas City and said, you're such a lucky little girl because you get to take a vacation in your hometown. And I'm thinking, is this cool or what? Well, I found out later that the reason I was taking this vacation was because my father had performed an abortion on the wife of a police officer who already had 10 children and she couldn't face number 11. Wow. But when her husband found out, he said, you killed my baby, I'm going to kill yours. So there were all these exciting, uh, dangerous things going on that around me, but I didn't know. And then when I was 17, there was, there was a mess up, a, a more than a mess up, a huge, terrible, tragic, fatal mistake. And uh, a young woman just about my age um, was killed in an abortion that my father performed. So uh, he did go to prison. He he later received a, a pardon. And when I was thinking of doing this one woman show, I went back to Kansas City and talked with the former prosecutor who had gone on to become a senator. And I, I walked in and his his office, there were these big blown up pictures of him with the Pope and things like that. <laughs> and he... Um, yeah, he, he, he was very, very adamant that when he saw that my father had been released from prison, he said, I devoted my life to getting scum like that off the street, you know, oh because he saw me. And the first thing he said was, 
you don't look like you could be his daughter. And I said, thank you, because I knew that was the right answer. (laughs) So with all this going on, I wanted to do the show that would just be my experience in this very strange environment at this very turbulent time in American history and really not come down on either side of the argument because I can so see both sides. And at different times in my life, I have identified strongly with one side or the other. It's just so tough. So to test out the idea and see if people would want to see this show, I wrote about this in the Huffington Post. And if anybody's interested, you can go to the Huffington Post and look up my father's other job or my father's second job, they may have called it, and and my name, and you'll find it. It's still there. But the response that I got was so virulent from both sides. Really? Yes. And it was everybody on both sides pretty much blaming me for what my father did because he's dead and they couldn't blame him. And, and that I have not come down strongly on one side or the other. Wow. So it's interesting. And I really think you're very brave to put a chapter in your book. Well, thank you. Um, when you, one thing you said that really struck me was when this man said, you killed my baby. So I'm going to kill your baby. And that kind of reminds me of what we talked about earlier, where Here's somebody, and he's certainly not pro-life if he's planning to kill someone's baby just because they're born. That doesn't make it okay. And um, But the notion that this is a sort of a property, that, that he had a property interest in that baby, and that now he's going to come after something valuable that belongs to your father. And mm. so it's such a very... Um, I think, very destructive way of thinking about beings as things that belong to us. And part of what I talk about in my um, book is just the sense that if, you know, if we were talking about uh, a fetus inside an incubator instead of a person, I think we'd have a very different conversation because then you wouldn't have that piece of 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 the story. Well, it's a big one for sure. And and one thing that I am loving about where veganism is going right now is that it really is a main street conversation. And I know people who are vegan who are profoundly pro-life. I know people who are vegan who are vociferously pro-choice. And that's good. And we can have dinner together. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it is. These are two very different sorts of issues, but they have commonalities and, and that we can better understand each other. Yeah. Well, let's go from a serious issue for all of us to think about to another one of these what if issues, because sometimes those are the hardest questions. This is one of my favorites. If we all became vegan, won't the farmed animals disappear? Yes. Well, that that is, I think, a in, in in some ways, a very silly question, but people do pose it. So, you know, my I, my thinking on that is, well, let's think about that. Do we want to conserve the DNA of animals who've been essentially engineered to suffer, right? You've got turkeys who aren't even able to mate because they've been bred to have such huge body part that we call breast in order for people to eat them. And we have chickens, um, hens who've been genetically engineered to have uh, to lay so many eggs that by the time they're two, they, one farmer described their bones as like potato chips. 
Um, I would prefer, I, I think we need to honor living beings, but not their DNA. And that's really what we're talking about when we say, well, what if the world, all the animals in the world were, were wild animals instead of these domesticated animals? I think that would be okay. We need to care for those who exist, but we don't need to bring more into existence to suffer these, you know, where they've evolved, they've essentially evolved backwards. They've evolved to be tastiest instead of to be fittest for feeling good and living a good life. Ah, oh, I like how you think. And I think too, as much as I think it sounds cruel to some people when they hear it, but these animals that have been bred by humans to be a great size. I mean, I guess we're learning now from the farmed animal sanctuaries, we're seeing these animals actually grow to maturity and, and old age. They're bigger than anybody ever thought they would get because they're mm-hmm. killed in adolescence. Yes. And so they're physically monstrosities, although as beings, they're delightful and charming and fantastic, yes. but they don't really have an ecological niche at this point. They don't. That Jay Dinshaw, the founder of the American Vegan Society, and this is one of my soapbox issues right now. If you are a vegan, you need to belong to the American Vegan Society. If you're an American vegan, okay, if you're listening in Hong Kong, you know it's optional. But the American Vegan Society was founded in 1960, and so many young vegans don't even know about this. This was the group that carried the banner for veganism before PETA, before Peter Singer, before we had soy milk in grocery stores. So anyway, Jay Dinshaw, founder of the American Vegan Society, used to say, you know, if this theoretical thing were to ever happen and everybody's vegan overnight, you know, people will take care of those animals because we'll have had this incredible awakening. Yes. And there'll always be a few kind of on preserves. Just uh, when when the buffalo were very small in number, there were a few. And things just change. Yes. And a lot of wild animals will be able to have space enough to exist. A lot of animals go extinct because we clear-cut forests in order to feed Uh, in order to feed cattle. Yeah, and I guess out west, I mean, I'm not familiar with it because I've never lived west of Missouri, (laughs) but it's just a huge issue, the kind of competition for the land between the grazing rights and the rights of the indigenous beings. And you do have sort of wildlife damage management, which sounds very nice, but actually involves killing a lot of wild animals as a matter of federal policy in order to protect the, the livestock so um so that it, it's not it's not real we're not really pre- you know conserving species in any kind of productive way by consuming animal products and it, it just comes back to the ownership doesn't it yes round and about do beings have a right to be or are they ours yes Great questions. And when we come back after the break, we're going to ask the really big question about ordering the cheeseburger. Stay with us for more Main Street Vegan. We'll be back right after this. Who have you come here to be? It's a question we all ponder from time to time. Reverend Kelly Isola, host of Spiraling Consciousness, and her co-authors have crafted a guidebook 
that will take you on a profound journey. If you long for love, peace, and joy, or yearn for commitment, passion, calm, or clarity, this book teaches you that you already have all of these within you. Whatever you long to experience outside of you is an aspect of you wanting to be birthed. Who have you come here to be? 101 Possibilities for Contemplation is part daily reader, part spiritual practicum. Drenched in gorgeous imagery, each powerful page invites readers to dance, to leap, to sit still, to stand tall as they ponder the question, Who have I come here to be? Join the journey of self-discovery. Come explore the world within an infinite field of possibilities to discover who have you come here to be. To order your copy of Who Have I Come Here to Be? 101 Possibilities for Contemplation, go to www.whohaveyoucomeheretobe.com. That's www.whohaveyoucomeheretobe.com. Whether you love the Bible or hate it, turn to it daily or refuse to have it in your house, The Bible Alive, Exploring Your Spiritual Roadmap is a program designed just for you. Unity Minister Rev. Ed Townley presents the Bible as a practical, powerful spiritual roadmap full of wisdom and guidance for the challenges of life today. A roadmap for your spiritual journey. Isn't that just what you're seeking? Listen live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Central Time for The Bible Alive, exploring your spiritual roadmap with Rev. Ed Townley, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for Main Street Vegan. Here is your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan. I'm here with Sherry Kolb, author of Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger, and we're going to find out if she does or not. (laughs) And on her lap is the beautiful Forbes Melton Moran. That's a hyphenation of my husband's last name and mine, because all of our kids are out of the house except Forbes, and he's just perfect. You're never going to give us any adolescent angst, are you? (laughs) So the three of us are joining you from here, and the wonderful Jeff Comfort from Lee Summit, Missouri, in the Unity Village, Unity Online radio station. So, okay, let's deal with this title. Yes. Why'd you pick it? And it is a great title. Thank you. I picked it because that is a question that comes up so often. And I think um, I think it's a very complicated issue, even though it sounds like a simple question. You know, someone says, mind if I order, mind if I, you know, I was going to say mind if I smoke, but it's a little bit different. Um, since in mind if I go use the restroom and, and can't imagine how you could possibly mind, but they ask. And I think that actually... You know, they're, what they're really asking is a whole series of questions. Like, first of all, will you still want to eat with me if I eat um, non-vegan food? And they're also asking, can you kind of endorse what I'm eating or at least give your blessing and, you know, kind of uh, acknowledge that you eat what you eat and I eat what I eat? And I think the answer is it's complicated. 
You know, I uh, certainly I will stay at the table and eat with you. You're my friend, but I'm not, you know, I'm, I care, you know, I care what anybody eats because this, this is not a personal issue. It's an ethical issue. So, um, so it's, it's, it is complicated. You know, sometimes you want to just say, well, do you have a couple hours if you ask that question? <laughs> so what do you actually say? Well, I'll, I usually say, well, do you, <coughs> do you really want an answer? <laughs> and then they kind of know. And then they'll say either, no, I don't, or um, I'll, I'll just order something vegan then. So I think it gets the message across in a somewhat humorous way. Yeah, that is a tough one. Because on the one hand, we are very, very much in the minority. Yes. And so people accommodate us and really feel that they're accommodating us because we are a minority. Yes. And yet when we accommodate them and we see the burger, we see somebody. Yes. (laughs) And so it's different, right? It's sort of how do you balance tolerance with ethical authenticity. Oh, that's huge. How do you do it? I think it's tough. And I think, you know, we need to be tolerant, but I think we also need to be firm about what we feel and what we believe and let people know this is what I feel and believe about this. um, But I'm still your friend and I'm not rejecting you just, but there's certain activities that I do reject. Mm. So, you know, just so that it's clear and then they make their choice and it's on them. It's not on us. And I am not rejecting Forbes because he is lying on the dining room table. The one place he is not allowed, but he must know that I'm on the radio and I can't do anything about it. And he's so cute. Oh, Forbes, you're brilliant. You're not only loving, you're bright. So was becoming vegan more of an intellectual or emotional choice for you, Sherry? For me, it was, I think I'd say that the delay in my becoming vegan was emotional that I had sort of intellectually understood. I don't want to be participating in hurting animals. I love animals and uh, it made sense to me in every way. And yet I didn't want to be different and I didn't want to give up cheese and all these things people say that sound silly to me now, but that's what I said before. So I would say that intellectually I was really headed toward veganism and emotionally I had some resistance that I ultimately overcame. And then, of course, emotionally I feel very good about being vegan because I do feel not only intellectually but very much emotionally committed to being a good friend of of the earthlings that I share this planet with. That is a lovely act of friendship. So you're raising your children this way? Yes. Yes. And how's that going? That's going well. They're they're actually, you know, now they're old enough to understand. And before it was really just, oh, this is what we eat. But now one of them's nine and one is 11. And they get it. And it's kind of cool to see them getting it. You know, somebody somebody said, I think, oh, I, well, I'm mostly vegan, but I just eat eggs from someone's backyard. And it was clear that you know, my, my daughter's like, oh, she's, quote, vegan. <laughs> you know, like they were, they were sort of reacting and... and uh, that way. And so they feel, they feel really good about their veganism. And I watch them with other children and it's very different because I didn't, I didn't grow up vegan, but they are growing up vegan. So they have a confidence about it where they are not at all. They're unapologetic and they'll ask the questions and what does this have? Oh, I don't think whey is vegan. And 
So it's it's kind of cool to see them independently walk, stepping forward with it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. That was, I mean, raising my daughter vegan, I think, was one of the best things I've ever done. It's a great gift to me. And I think a gift to the world. I'm seeing her now as an adult doing wildlife rehab and all these great things that she does. Still vegan, married to a vegetarian, tolerant that he doesn't want to give up cheese. You know, <laughs> it's just how life kind of, of works. It's wonderful yeah. to see. So, Sherry, you grew up in a very religious home. You had a religious education. And, and you write in your book about how religions see animals and see veganism. Can you talk about that? Yes. Um, I think one of, the, one of the worries people sometimes have about veganism is, oh, isn't this against my religion because people eat a lot of meat? And honestly, religions don't tend to require people to eat meat or dairy. And in fact, in Judaism, it's quite interesting that most of the dietary restrictions surround the consumption of animal products. So you can't, it's only when you're going to have meat that there are all these things you have to make sure the animal is slaughtered correctly or, uh, and you can't have it with this other animal product, dairy and um, whereas if you're eating fruits and vegetables and nuts and legume, you know, legumes and, and all the you know, greens, none of that is regulated to that degree. And so I once heard a, a rabbi who was the principal of the school where I, where I went growing up say God wants it to be kind of a drag to eat animal products because it makes it's much easier not to. And I think that that's part of religion too, a sense that this is where, you know, the God... In the Bible, which Jews and Christians hold dear, there's the, the world begins with a vegan diet, right in the same paragraph as dominion, right? God gives an, an, humans dominion over animals and then says, you're going to eat from the fruit of the tree and seeds and so on. So, I mean, I think the, the message is dominion is not the same thing as exploitation and use, that you can be in power over someone and take care of them instead of eating them. So how do you speak with other religious people? I think it's a different conversation than when you're talking with someone who has a more secular or humanist view of the world. Yes, it certainly is. And I mean, I'm very respectful of religious people, and I think there are a lot of real treasures in every religion. Um, and one of the treasures you find in just about every religion is a consciousness about the suffering of animals that takes some or other form. And to me, the greatest expression of that is veganism. Um, and it's consistent with religion. So it's not a violation of anyone's religion to eat vegan food. And in fact, some people were moving into an apartment where I used to live when I lived in Manhattan, and they were ultra-Orthodox. And they said, oh, you're, so you're vegan, so your kitchen is kosher, right? And I thought that was interesting that, that that's, that's pretty much true. There isn't the food that's vegan is also going to be kosher. Um, and, you know, so they're not, there's not a tension there. And I think that in some ways vegan is the new kosher. Wow, that sounds like a great bumper sticker <laughs> or a T-shirt. Yeah, yeah I, that's, that's very cool. I remember when I was living in the Ozarks, there was a little tiny health food store in our town. And the woman who owned it was a very conservative Christian and she told me the story of how it that God came into her heart with this idea that she should go vegetarian. But just to be sure, she asked her pastor if it was okay, just in case she was misunderstanding God. 
And the pastor said, it's, it's absolutely fine as long as you don't put the animals before Jesus. And I thought, now, isn't that interesting? Because it seems to me that if you're eating something, that's what you're going to put ahead of your faith. It's like, yes. okay, let's shorten these prayers. I'm going to go have the cheeseburger <laughs> yeah. as opposed to you know, simplifying life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's find another great question in your fabulous book. Well, here's a good one since we've been talking about religion. Doesn't God value us more than the other animals? Yes. And I think that's a part of any conversation about religion and veganism, which is what about human exceptionalism? Aren't humans above the others? And I think that it's certainly undeniable that humans have capacities that the other animals lack, you know, certainly our symbolic language and things like this. But for me, that means that we have more power, and we certainly do, and we are capable of doing so much in the way of creation, but also destruction. And part of being powerful and gifted is to manage our gifts responsibly and to be, and, and to be a steward rather than, uh, rather than to consume mindlessly. So I think that Human exceptionalism just means that, you know, we have responsibilities that the animals don't have, but it, but it, but I think that's consistent and, and very much fulfilled by showing kindness and compassion to animals by not consuming them and consuming their lives. And how about the indigenous people's <laughs> argument? Yes. Um, well, the indigenous people's argument, when people will say, well, isn't it great that the indigenous peoples thank the animals what they, when they eat them? And one response that I have for that is that it depends which indigenous peoples you're talking about because there were, peop- there were there, for instance, Native Americans who ate very little in the way of animal products and really their diet was focused on plants. Um, certainly Eskimos, that's different because of the terrain where they lived. But a lot of how the thanking of the animals and then apologizing to the animals, I think, reflects a consciousness that there's some harm that's done and that if we can avoid doing that harm, we should. Um, and that we see a kind of parallel, but much less respectful parallel in the restaurants that we have on the streets. And if you look and they'll have like a barbecue place with a cat, with a pig serving burgers or whatever. And um, I think that with that, it's a kind of pretense that the animals are cool with it. And, but it's a much more mocking pretense than thanking the animals. In both cases, we're sort of saying, well, you're in on it. But the Native Americans were closer to the truth. Than yeah. Them. How fascinating. The only place that I have ever been where being vegan or even vegetarian would be tough was Tibet because at that very high elevation and very poor soil, they can grow little cabbage, little potatoes, little barley, but pretty much they're dependent on the yak. But when the people there learned that our little group, my boyfriend at the time, my young daughter and myself were vegan, they were in such awe because they thought we were these amazing Buddhists. And you know, <laughs> we're actually not Buddhists, but you know, I think we're all everything. I think all the religions are trying to get to the same place. But they would make us these beautiful vegan meals, and then they would go off and eat in another room. 
And I didn't understand about that until I asked someone there. And he said, you know, it was kind of like the kosher thing that we were eating this, this beautiful, blessed kind of vegetarian way. And they were eating meat, so they'd go do that somewhere else. That's interesting. So they really appreciated what you were doing. They could admire it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also interesting, too. You know, none of us is perfect. And certainly there's no perfect vegan. You know, we're all just kind of doing this the best we can. But in in Tibet, where they're really not supposed to slaughter the animals because that's against the precepts of Buddhism. So they have a very tiny Muslim community in Lhasa, and they slaughter the yeah, animals. <laughs> that's interesting. Well, that, I think a lot of religions have that kind of a loophole, that there's some sense that this isn't really the right thing to do, so we're going to outsource it. Yes. Um, and, of course, that's people consuming animal products now typically are buying it at the store. And it's easy to forget what we're funding when we buy stuff. It's true. We forget that they're animals. I know sometimes when I have visitors, and we always go to Chinatown. I just love Chinatown in New York City. When we first got here, my daughter is like 17, and she said, Chinatown is our Walmart. (laughs) But people who who eat meat will see the carcasses hanging in the windows, and they're very obviously chickens, turkeys, ducks, and they'll say, ooh, oh, that's so gross. And yet... When it's all wrapped up, then there's not a head or a foot. Yeah, in fact, just recently in the news, a woman sued, I don't know if it was a restaurant or um, a meat company, because there was a chicken foot in with her chicken breast. I think I heard something about this. Isn't that interesting? And it's sort of like, wow, that that was offensive. Yeah. too real, too yes, real. Exactly. So just to make sure we get it in, is there a way that people can find out more about your work, or your website, um, Twitter? Well, I'm not that I'm not that great on technology, okay. but if they go to mindifiorderthecheeseburger.com, there's some stuff about the book, and of course they can order the book. And I, I blog, and occasionally those blogs are about um, vegan issues on dorfonlaw.org. Um, and uh, I also write a column every two weeks on verdict.justia.com, and those are sometimes on animal issues as well. Okay, we'll take a look, take a look. Now, just in our last minute, we did mention vegans not being perfect, as much as I guess any of us hate to admit that we're not. But your final chapter is, there are no perfect vegans, so why bother? <laughs> yes. So, um, right. So my first response to that is there are no perfect anything, and yet we ought to bother, right? And I talk about how, you know, I could be more patient and kind to my children, but that's not a reason to just give up and just be a total grump either. Um, And so that's a sort of a general principle that we should strive for better, even though we're never going to be perfect. And then part of the chapter about that is is about why veganism is better than the alternative and, um, and that we actually do substantially reduce the amount of suffering and death by being vegan. Uh, and that if 
more and more people go vegan, that becomes increasingly true. It has a real multiplier effect. Wow, that's beautiful. I was just on the Jazzy Vegetarian show a couple of hours ago, and you can find that. That's Laura Theodore's wonderful vegetarian, vegan uh, food and, and cooking show. And we were talking about this very thing that, you know, it takes a while to get rid of your leather shoes and it took me decades to get rid of all my wool because I like to buy nice clothes and keep them a while. Sure. But the process is a beautiful, beautiful thing. It Thank is. you so much, Sherry, for being with us today. Everybody, seriously, get this book, Mind If I Order the Cheeseburger, and other questions people ask vegans by Sherry F. Kolb, C-O-L-B. Check this lady out. You'll want to know her. Thanks so much for being with us today. God bless you. you. Oh, you're so welcome. And eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. You've seen reality TV. Well, now get ready for reality radio. It's raw, unpredictable, and completely unscripted. Healing Your Life with Dr. Chris Michaels follows the lives of four people each season as they face their fears and overcome challenges. Listen in weekly and follow along as they take each faithful step on their journey. Learn what it takes to really heal your life. Dr. Chris Michaels shows you how to expect specific and measurable results from prayer. He says, we must place a demand upon consciousness. We don't hope to get what we pray for. We expect it. As a 25-year veteran in the New Thought Movement, Dr. Chris has helped thousands of people find their way to success and healing. His faith is unshakable, and his commitment to helping others heal through the power of prayer is extraordinary. Don't miss Reality Radio, Healing Your Life with Dr. Chris Michaels. Live Mondays at 11 a.m. Central Time on Unity Online Radio. In quiet moments of prayer, let go of any concern. Anchor your trust deep in the realization that with God all things are possible. Never doubt it for a single moment. This meditative moment is brought to you by Unity. Celebrated Unity minister and author Eric Butterworth tells us, The exciting thing is that wherever you may be along the way of unfoldment and self-realization, no matter what the problems or challenges you may face, there is always more in you, the mystery of God in you, the Christ in you, which means your potential for healing, for overcoming, for prosperity. There is no limit. 
Join us each week for Discovering Eric Butterworth, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Central Time with host Reverend Tom Thorpe, right here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. Are you tired of life slamming the door in your face? Did you get another rejection letter, pink slip, foreclosure notice, or go on yet another bad date? Does it seem like the older you get, the more hopeless life seems? Are you ready to stop taking no as your final answer? Then join us for Design Your Life, a talk show by Kevin Cottrell Ross, the coach's coach. Go into the locker room for one full hour with the championship coach every week. And start designing your winning playbook that will make the rest of your life the best of your life. That's Design Your Life with Kevin Cottrell Ross, the coach's coach. Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Central Time on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well, you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on mindbodyspirit.fm.